0: The history that we just read in the psalm is, as the people of God is our own history. Not only because it describes spiritually our condition and what God has done, but because that is our spiritual lineage. God working in providence to bring us to where we are today. In this verse we see the future of the people of God and what we have to look forward to. Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would add Your blessing to the reading of Your Word and that You would commission Your Holy Spirit now to make application, to give understanding to Your Word. Father, we who are evil know that when it's time to eat, Our children ought to be fed, or they will die. We've come now into Your care, and it's time for us to feed upon Your Word. And Lord, You know that if we don't eat, we will die. So please feed Your people. Thank You for being such a good Father to us. It's in the name of Your Son and our King, the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. The last time that we were in the Revelation, we considered the punishment of the wicked. and that section that we looked at, we concluded with verse 12. We saw that this description of the torment that's going to come upon the wicked is actually given to the saints of God as a means of motivation. It's an encouragement to them, a call to endurance. The fact that we saw there is that we ought to be compelled to endure because we know that all of those who are enemies of God and enemies of His Christ and therefore who are our enemies will someday enter into an unchanging state of suffering underneath the hand of the God of righteousness and wrath. That's an encouragement to us, but this is certainly not our only incentive. We've seen in the Revelation that our job as Christians is to hold up the light of the gospel, to hold fast through suffering, and hold out until the end And we've never come to the conclusion that the only reason that we ought to do that and to continue to endure, the only motivation we have is, well, judgment will come upon the wicked. There's more than that. We're spurred on to endurance, not only by the the cursed state that will come upon the wicked, but because of the blessed condition that waits for us. And that's what we see in this 13th verse, this verse describes the blessed state of those saints who persevere until the end, and it's, we're given this information in order to stimulate us to endurance. It's an encouragement to endure. As we've seen many times, the victory for the Christian is obtained when we have been faithful unto death. Now that might be a martyr's death. That might be uh, the, the quiet death in the sleep of old age. It might be a sudden death in the midst of youthful vigor. It might be a tragic and sickly death for the young like we see in the lives of men like David Brainerd and Robert Machane, Men that we would look at and say, My, what, what great ministry lies ahead of these men? And, and yet they're taken before the age of 30. Either way we look at it, death for the Christian is the finish line. The Christian life is often likened to a race. And just like our Lord Jesus, we run this race not simply with the torment of the wicked before us, but for the joy that is set before us. We have something to look forward to that calls us to the finish line. Now, to give an illustration, this is going to be hard for most of us to imagine because it's been probably years since the majority of us have ever actually engaged in a, a foot race or even tried to run very far at all. But when we imagine a foot race, we could probably picture ourselves, we're running, we're rounding the corner of the race and perhaps we're able to, to lay our eyes upon the finish line. And having seen the finish line, we might be encouraged to pick up the pace, to push ourselves Harder than we have ever pushed ourselves before because we know that when we finish, when we cross the finish line, the race will be over. And yet we know in a, in, in a physical race, for most of us again, when we cross that finish line, we will at that point collapse onto the ground in a heap. Gasping for breath, huffing and puffing. Our hearts will be pounding out of our chest. Our lungs are going to be burning. Our legs are going to be burning, and it's going to take at least 30 minutes to just get reacclimated to a normal physical state in a in a foot race because we're most of us out of uh, a good physical condition. And so when we think about the Christian life, we might think that like it's that. Like we, we, we ought to push ourselves very hard and then when we cross the finish line, there's going to be this, this collapsing to the ground. But the Christian life is actually the very opposite. For the joy that's set before us where we ought to always be picking up our pace, the closer we get to the finish line, we, we ought to be pushing harder and harder. And we do this because we know that when we close our eyes in death... We're not going to collapse on the floor gasping for breath. We will enter immediately into eternal rest and eternal peace. Immediately, in an instant, more acclimated than we've ever been in any circumstance on earth. We'll be at home. We will be at peace. We will be at rest. And this verse is one of the many verses in Scripture that convey that truth. Now I want to open this verse up by asking four questions of the text. First, what is the spiritual condition of those who are described here? Secondly, what is the physical condition of those described here? Thirdly, what is the federal condition of those described here? And then lastly, upon what grounds are they said to be in this condition? I don't typically give titles to my sermons, but I've given this sermon the title, The Happy Condition of a Dead Christian. So here's the first question of the text. What is the spiritual condition of those that are described here? Let's look at it. Verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed says the Spirit. Now first, we, we, we meet two speakers. First, there's a voice from heaven, it says, and we're, we're not told who this is. It might be the voice of God Himself. It might be the voice of Christ. It could perhaps be the voice of an angel. We've seen angels speaking from this area throughout the book of the Revelation. In any case, the angel would be speaking on behalf of God and of His Christ, if that were the case. We just know this is a voice from heaven. Any way we, we slice this, we can at least conclude that this is a divine pronouncement. Whether it is from God Himself or a messenger of God, this pronouncement and the spiritual condition of these people is, is, is pronounced from the voice of inerrancy, infallibility, and all-sufficiency. This is the Word of the living God a voice from heaven, but now if that weren't enough, we now have the second voice, a confirmation literally from the Spirit of God Himself. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. Th- that word indeed means yes, or assuredly, or emphatically so. So one voice says blessed, then the Holy Spirit comes with His testimony exactly, most assuredly, and emphatically yes, they are blessed. Blessed. So we have a double pronouncement, a dual testimony to the spiritual condition of those described. And so I think we can confidently say as Bible believers that the people that are described here are truly blessed people. Now what does that word mean, blessed? We've seen it many times before. The word means literally happy. Happy. Happy are the dead who die in the Lord. Happy indeed, says the Spirit. Emphatically so, yes. Exactly, they are happy. And we know from Scripture that this happiness is not something that's experienced or understood by carnal men. They get happy if they get a new car. They get happy if they get a new pair of shoes. This is a completely different happiness. This happiness is not a part of their experience. This is a special happiness. Let me give you some examples of this. This word, Psalm 1, 1 and 2, Blessed, same word in in the Greek translation of the Psalms. Blessed, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. a blessed one, the blessed man, is one who does not run with sinners, He delights in the law of God. Psalm 2.12, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. That was the other group we talked about. But then, blessed, same word, are all who take refuge in him. Perhaps even more clear, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is forgiven. Is covered. Blessed is the man, or blessed the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the blessed, the blessed ones, those who have this happiness. They do not run with sinners, they delight in the law of the Lord. They take refuge in the Son of God. They have had their transgressions forgiven, their sins are covered. God does not impute their sins to them. That's who we're talking about here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That would have been helpful to these saints. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. The Beatitudes, remember, are describing a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's the blessed one. Now even more relevant to the usage of this word is, it's, is the way that it's used in the Revelation itself. Jesus gave five Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Revelation, there are seven Beatitudes. Opening and closing the book, we have two. Revelation 1-3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then at the end, Revelation 22-7, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Those are pronounced blessed who read the Word of God and keep it, who who observe, who do what the Word of God says. Not those who merely hear it, but who keep it. Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Those are blessed in the revelation who are ready and prepared for the return of the Lord. Revelation nineteen nine Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The blessed ones are the bride of Christ, the, the church. Revelation twenty two, fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. The blessed ones are those who eat of the tree of life, and who will enter into the eternal city of God. Who are the blessed ones? It's the Christians. Believers. Saints of the Most High God. And so this spiritual condition that's being described here is a blessedness. It is an exclusively Christian happiness. Nobody on earth has this happiness. It is reserved for the believer. Only possessed and experienced by the believer. This blessedness is the state of soul joy, S O U L, soul joy, that is given by the indwelling of the Spirit of God Himself in the believer. This happiness is not aided by temporal things. It's not a happiness that is merely of the physical man, it's a happiness of the inner man. It's not fanned into flame by external circumstances. This is a a happiness that the Spirit of God gives to the the inner man of a Christian. And so those described here, they're double pronounced and they're said to be happy in the truest sense of the word, happy. Now, we can and do have this happiness and experience this happiness even in this life. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor. It is something that we have from the very moment of our regeneration and the indwelling of the Spirit. But what we're going to see is that the blessedness that's being described here goes beyond even what we can experience in this life. In this life, very often, our our felt sense of this blessedness is tainted. Or our experience of this happiness is foiled by the state of Things. It might be our own sin that causes us to not attain to the fullness of this happiness. It might simply be the circumstances of life in the world. So that this, this happiness we, we don't reach the fullest potential of it in this life. We have it, but there's still more held out for us. What's being described here in this text is better than that. It's, it's greater than that. This happiness supersedes anything. That we might know or experience in this life. Now, why is that? It's because this blessedness that's described here, this happiness, is not stifled or nibbled at by the little foxes that inhabit this present order. But to answer the question what is the physical or the spiritual condition of these people? They're blessed people, these are happy people, these are happy Christians. Second question, what is the physical state of those described? The text says, blessed are the dead who die. Blessed are the dead who die. The text is describing people who are dead. It's addressed to the living, describing the dead. Because death was looming over the heads of these saints and really every every human being who's alive, but especially the people of God as they consider reality, as God reveals it in His Word. We understand death is always looming. Now we could ask what death is being described here. It's not spiritual death. We've already seen this happiness is a description of Christians only. Those who were once spiritually dead, but have been given life from the dead. These people are no longer spiritually dead, so we're not talking about the spiritual spiritually dead. It's not eternal death. We've already addressed those who will suffer the eternal death in the lake of fire. And again, Christians are the blessed ones. The blessed ones do not perish but take refuge in the sun, Psalm 2. So it's not eternal death. Well, that only leaves physical death. That's the death that's being described here. Physical death. So this text, written to living Christians, is describing physically dead Christians. James describes physical death in these terms. James 2.26 The body, apart from the spirit, is dead. So the spirit, which is the animating principle of life, leaves the body, leaving the body in a state of death. The body is dead. The body, apart from the Spirit, is dead. Not the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't die. The Spirit of life in us is from God. God is life. He's the giver of life. The life that we have, the animating principle, is as eternal as God. It will go on forever, but the body dies. Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from the body, we, there is a we, there is a personhood, an existence of personhood that's away from the body. The body's down there, it's dead. We would rather be away from that. That's, that's physical death. Philippians one twenty two. he says, my desire is to depart, my, me, speaking for Paul, as a, as a being with existence, I have a desire that would be fulfilled if I could depart, if I could leave this body, that's death. Physical death takes place when our spirit, the inner man, as I tell my kids, the you that, is, that you are when your eyes are closed, that, that you that is you, when no body is considered, no physical aspects are considered, the inner man, physical death takes place when the soul or the spirit leaves, vacates, departs the body, and therefore the body dies. The physical body dies. That's who's being described here. Dead people. People who are dead. People who are still people. They didn't stop being people. They're still conscious persons. But their spirits have left their bodies. So these people who have vacated their bodies, leaving their bodies to be dead, those people are happy people. Blessed. Happy indeed. With a happiness that cannot be experienced in this life. A happiness, these dead people have a happiness which supersedes all senses of those who are still living. A happiness that can't be comprehended as long as the Spirit remains in the physical body. So who are we talking about here? What's their physical condition? They're dead. We're talking about dead Christians. Now we know that the root of death is sin or that death is the result of sin Romans 5:12 sin came into the world through one man and death through sin physical death is evidence of spiritual death either prior or existing while we can be given spiritual life in the soul the physical effects of the fall which produce physical death are not going to be overturned until Christ returns So every person, whether they remain in a state of spiritual death or whether they are brought to spiritual life, every person will experience a physical death. Death comes to all. Romans 5.12, death spread to all men because all sinned. All fell in Adam and therefore physical death spreads to all people. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once Now we hear that, we get the whatabouts, right? What about Enoch? What about Elijah? Well, those are exceptions that prove the rule. Everybody dies. Unless God intervenes and alters things, everyone dies. Everyone in this room will die. You will die. And the Bible teaches that God has already appointed the day of our death. Acts 17.26 says that He's determined allotted periods. He picked it out when you would begin and when you would end. It's already established. Matthew 6.27, Jesus said, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? God not only has already determined the day, He's determined the hour of your death, and there's nothing that you can do to add to the days or to the hours. Your day has been fixed. You will die. While all men die, and God has already determined the day of our death, He's not revealed that day to us. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. It's not necessary for us to know the day of our death. He's reserved that knowledge for Himself. It's a secret knowledge that He's not revealed. We know that we will die. We do not know when we will die. Now this week... I pumped gas beside a local man whose son's name is Quentin, who is seven years old, who has terminal illness. He will die. Quentin knows he's going to die. Quentin knows he probably will never be eight. He knows it. He talks with his parents about it. He knows. Earlier this week, another young boy died tragically. His name was Grayson. Tragic death, completely unexpected. He, did, he had no idea. He was going outside to play with a friend. Had no idea he would die. He was eight years old. Thought he was just going to play. Had no clue when he woke up that morning that it would be his last day. Had no clue when he was injured that it would be his last day. And yet he died. Everybody dies. We don't know when. We don't know how. Even those who might have a terminal illness and they say, well, I'm counting down the days, they still don't know the moment or the hour of their death. I would almost guarantee that those who, who, who even come in and out of consciousness, getting closer and closer to the moment of death, they don't close their eyes thinking, now is the time that will be the last. They think, I'll close my eyes like I did before and I'll open them in a few minutes. I just need to rest and then they're gone. We don't know when we're going to die, and I would assume that most often when that time comes, we're not consciously thinking, here I go, here I go, here I go, and dead. We don't think that. It's like going to sleep in the bed. You don't think about when you go to sleep. You You really just open your eyes the next morning. We don't know. Death comes to all men. Death is appointed by God, and yet we don't know when it will be. And, and those things, amidst others, have caused death to be a, a source of fear for everybody. The Bible says that all men by nature are enslaved to a lifelong fear of death. And even for Christians, though we've been released from that slavery of fear, very often we continue at least a little nervous because we're always nervous about doing something we've never done before. But our text says, there, there are a lot of things we don't know about the moment of death and what it will be like, what it will feel We don't know. What we do know is what our text says, blessed are the dead who die. Happy are the Christians who die. They're happy when they're dead. Death is a result of the fall of man into sin. Death comes to all men. God has already determined the day. He's not revealed that day to us. By nature we fear death, but for the Christian to be dead is to be happy. And the Holy Spirit says, yes, exactly, emphatically so, they're happy. It is to be blessed. The text says, blessed are the dead. Not blessed will be the dead. Blessed are the dead. The tense of the verb indicates the blessedness is found, it is achieved as they are dead. When they die, they're happy. Death escorts the Christian into this state of indescribable, unimaginable happiness. To so this happiness characterizes those who are presently dead. Those who die from now on from the time of the writing of this letter until this very day December 27th 2020 those who die in the lord are happy from the time of this writing until today there are dead christians they're physically dead but they're not spiritually dead they're they're alive spiritually their spirits are absent from their bodies but they still experience this blessedness. They are consciously aware of their blessed and happy state. Third question. What is the federal state of those described here? The federal condition, and by federal I mean their covenantal representation. What is the covenantal designation of those described here? It says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. That's their state, in the Lord. And that phrase, in the Lord, is a reference to our vital spiritual union with Jesus Christ through faith by His Spirit. Where we come into a union with Him... Just as the same Spirit animating, animates my head that animates my feet, so the same Spirit that is in Christ our head animates all of the members of His body so that we share with Him in that mystical union by His Spirit. Through the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, we're united to Christ and He becomes our federal head. Now this, of course, is in contrast to our federal nature in Adam. We're all born in Adam and in Adam all die. That is, everyone who's born under the headship of Adam must undergo a physical death. While we, are, while we who are saved are united to Christ, our bodies are still subject to death. But the blessing that's found in texts like this, this is astonishing to me, is that we're said to be in the Lord or elsewhere in Christ, even though we're dead. Those who die as Christians die in the Lord. Those who die in the Lord are dead in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 refers to the dead in Christ. Their bodies are dead, but they're still united to Christ. That that hasn't changed. 1 Corinthians 6.15, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Our physical bodies partake in this union with Christ. And so our physical bodies, even after death, are members of Christ, united to Christ. That's why our physical bodies will be raised up. They're united to Him. He's not going to leave them in the ground. He's going to bring them up on the last day. So how is it that even though we're dead, we can still be called blessed or happy? It seems like an almost incongruent irony. How can I be happy even though I'm dead? Because we, we most of the time tie our happiness just directly to everything in this life. How could, I, how, how could there be happiness? Again, the blessedness is not rooted in our physical condition. But even in death, we're still united to Christ. Christ is our happiness. He is our blessedness. That doesn't change because we die. Even though death is a result of sin and is an enemy to the people of God... Even death cannot do anything to us except bring us into a greater state of blessedness in Christ. Now what constitutes this blessedness for the dead Christian? Why is the dead Christian so stinking happy? Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon at David Brainerd's funeral, and he listed five things, and I'll just list them. He says, we go to dwell in the same blessed abode as the glorified human nature of Christ. We go to dwell in the immediate, full, constant view of Christ. We're brought into a most perfect conformity to and union with Christ. We enjoy a glorious and immediate intercourse and converse with Christ. Ever struggled in prayer? You won't after you die. Number five, we're received into a glorious fellowship with Christ in His blessedness. And then he goes on to answer, okay, what is the blessedness of Christ? What what do we... Fellowship with Him in. Well, we partake with Christ in the ineffable delights He has in the enjoyments of His Father. We partake with Christ in that dominion to which the Father has exalted Him. We partake with Christ in the blessed and eternal enjoyment of glorifying the Father. That's what constitutes the happiness for the dead Christian. This is why we're called blessedness, because we come to Christ. We get Christ, Christ, Christ... His blessedness, His enjoyments, His exaltation. The essence of the blessedness of the saints of God is the blessedness of Christ. Death brings us into closer fellowship and communion with Christ. This is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from the body and to be present with the Lord, at home with the Lord, Philippians 1.23, he says, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Can, can you say that? I, I, I want to go. I'd rather be away. It's far better. Now, Paul had been with Christ, had visions of Christ, had been discipled by Christ, had been taken up into the, th- the third heaven, and so I think it might be wise for us to take his advice when he says, Trust me, it's far better. I was taken up. I had to come back. I'm ready to go back to where I was. The Christian who dies enters into a truly blessed condition from which they would never desire to return. As I say all the time, 30 seconds in the presence of Christ and if an angel came to you and said, look, we got our paperwork mixed up. You can go back now if you'd like. The Christian says, don't even... Pretend like that is an option. Don't make me go back there. Well, your family's down there. They'll be fine. Your children are down there. They'll be fine. There's work to be done. It'll get done. I don't want to go back. It's far better because of this union with Christ, because we're dead in the Lord. Fourth question, upon what grounds are they said to be in this condition? In this text... What what is the reason the saints are going to be blessed? Well, it says, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may, or in order that they may, rest from their labors for or because their deeds follow them. They're happy, they're blessed, because in death they come to rest and reward. The dead Christian rests from his or her labors. Now rest has always been that which has been held out to God's people even from the very beginning. The Sabbath from creation to Israel even down to the present time has been given as a token to the people of God. There is a rest to come. Here take this one one day in seven and that's a, an earnest, a down payment of the rest that is to come. God reminding us of our eternal rest. Christ in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, and My burden is light. Christ comes into the world, and He says, I'll give you rest. He's offering up the rest. Every Christian experiences something of that rest in this life when we come to Christ. But the reality of the fall is that even our rest is usually tainted in some way. Even if it's only in the fact that our resting and our most blessed seasons come to an end or are fragmented and momentary. In other words, we, we come to the, the Lord's Day. We say this is a delightful day of worship. But i still got to get up. i got to get the kids ready. i got to get the car warmed. It's not quite as warm as I thought it would be. Then I'm here. And I'm bearing with one of my, the burdens of my brothers and sisters. And sometimes I just don't want to bear with them that much. It is a delightful day. I'm trying to enjoy it. Even even the blessed token of the eternal rest has some aspect of labor to it. As Solomon would say, everything that we do under the sun has some hint of weariness mixed in with it. Christ offers this rest to us. And here we see that upon our death, we enter into that rest with which there is no weariness mixed. The weariness is gone. The labor is gone. This is a great contrast to what we saw in the description of the wicked in chapter 11 when it said the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest, day or night. The wicked enter into a state of eternal unrest. We enter into eternal rest. Now this is not to be confused with the state of glorification. Glorification. We do not die and immediately become glorified. That doesn't happen until Christ returns in His glory. So this is an intermediate state of indescribable happiness that leads to our glorification. Like Adam and Israel before us, so we also are offered rest from our earthly toil, which for us begins at death and then empties into eternity in glory. And so we read in our text, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest. How much rest? From now on. Anybody who dies from now on, they enter into rest, and that rest begins now and goes from now on. Now, get this. This present age is one characterized by the death of the saints who enter immediately into a pre glorification rest, and because of this, we're said to be blessed or happy. Now, remember back in chapter 6, verse 11 prior to the final day, prior to the final judgment, what are the saints told? Rest a little longer. That is, until the judgment, until the final day, until glorification. Just continue, just keep resting until the final day. The present age is characterized by Christians who die, enter into rest, but it's not glory. In addressing the saints of Smyrna, Christ told them that at the moment of their physical death, they would receive the crown of life. At the moment of their death, they receive the crown of life They achieve the victory, and in so conquering, they are safe from what? The second death. He who experiences the first death, like this, the Christians, are not liable to the second death. Here in chapter 14, 13, that same truth is applied to all Christians. It's not just those in Smyrna. It's all Christians of the present age from now on, beginning now and moving on into the future. In chapter 20, if you were keeping count, there was one beatitude that I did not reference. It was chapter 20. This beatitude is expressed this way. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. When is the thousand years? From now on. What is the first resurrection? It is the physical death of a Christian. Now what greater encouragement can I give you to not be afraid of death than to tell you that when God speaks of your death, He refers to it as a resurrection into a happy state, a state of rest. Just like Christ came from the grave and entered into His rest. When we die, we enter into our rest and someday we'll be glorified and follow Him. So there's rest and then there's also reward. They rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. The things that they did on the earth, they don't stay back behind. It's not like all of that was completely insignificant. It goes behind them. It goes with them, eventually following them into the judgment. Now we trace this out in Revelation 6.11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Here's your robe, rest. Revelation 19.8 says that the, the bride was given fine linen, bride and pure, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The white robe, fine linen, righteous deeds of the saints. Take this and rest a little longer. While we could see the white robes as the clothing of the perfect righteousness of Christ, there also seems to be implicit in these phrases the idea of being rewarded for one's actual righteous deeds. Now, All of it is done by virtue of Christ Himself. But elsewhere we read in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Psalm 62.12 says, For you will render to a man according to his work. Our deeds go with us. Again, we tend to drift into that hyper-justificationism, right? I'm justified by faith alone. And then when we talk about entering into heaven, rewards for deeds? Well, no, I'm justified by faith alone. Well, we're not talking about justification anymore. We're talking about the reward for our deeds. We put all of this together at this point in the Revelation. What's the point? He's saying endure, be faithful, continue, stay steadfast unto the end because number one, death for the Christian is actually a resurrection into the presence of Christ and blessed rest. And number two, our endurance and our labor is storing up for us treasures for that day. Our deeds will follow us. This is the happy condition of a dead Christian. Now some things that we can glean from this. First, Christians do not need to fear death. Christians ought not to fear death. Christ has defeated the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He has freed us from that lifelong fear of death. We have no reason to be afraid of death. In His resurrection, Christ defeated death Himself. The grave slab for the Christian has already been warmed by the body of Christ. Our passageway from this life into the next still smells of our Savior. There's no reason to be afraid. He's already done it. And He's written us to let us know, I've already taken the sting from death. Christians don't need to fear death. Death brings greater blessedness to the saints. You think this is good? Just wait until you die. You can't imagine it. You can't believe it. Our blessedness is greater at death because death leads to rest. We labor now, but our death will end our labor. Death is our victory. Death is the finish line. And so fourthly, life is preparation for death. As we read in Psalm 90, 12, "...teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom." The thought of death for the believer ought to give us wisdom. How ought I to live in this life? Well, if you put death before your eyes and everything that we've said, death comes to all, death is appointed by God, He knows the day and the time, but we do not know the day or time, but we know it's coming. If I think of all of that, that teaches me how to live, not what might happen if so-and-so wins the election." That doesn't teach me how to live. Lay up treasures in heaven through earthly labors. We want to lay up treasures that when we die, they're actually going to follow us. They're not going to have to dangle off of us as we go into our eternal rest because they were useless. So then here are five specific things that we need to do in light of all of this. Number one, we must evaluate ourselves rightly. The question is, are you in Christ? Everything that I've said about the happiness of death is only applicable to Christians. If you're not a Christian, you don't get this happiness. In our culture, we like to pretend like everybody gets this happiness. Everybody that dies gets wings. Everybody that dies goes to a better place. Everybody that dies is looking down upon us. That's false. That's damning lies to people. That makes a comfortable seat in sin for people. That's not true. Everybody doesn't get this happiness. It's not for everyone. It's for the Christian only. Are you in Christ? If you die, will you die in the Lord or in your sins? That's the question. The question is not, did Jesus die? Everybody knows Jesus died. The devil knows Jesus died. The question is not, did, did, was Jesus raised from the dead? The devil knows Jesus was raised from the dead. The question is, has the virtue of the work of Christ been effectually applied to you by the Holy Spirit through faith? Have you put your faith in the man Christ Jesus? Those are the ones who are united to Him. Only those in Christ can look at death and say, that's going to be a happy time. Evaluate yourself rightly. Secondly, consider death soberly. Consider death soberly. Don't ignore the reality of death as some do, as our culture does. We, we don't like to think about death. We have people, an entire profession of people, that it's their job to take a dead body and make it not look so dead. Get your makeup on, sew their mouth shut, put paint on their face, make them kind of green so that they don't look dead. Don't let people know that this person is dead. Make them look like they're sleeping. No, they're dead. They're dead. We don't have funerals anymore, do we? We have a celebration of life. Because people don't like to talk about death. No, that's a dead person. If y'all get to orchestrate my funeral, let everybody know he's dead. He's dead. We don't like to, think, to, talk, to talk about that. We, we ignore the reality. Don't ignore the reality of death. At the same time, don't obsess over the reality of death as if that's all that's ever on your mind. But think of it soberly. Yes, God has appointed my day. Yes, it is coming. I don't know when that day is. Therefore, I will live as God has commanded me today. What has God commanded me to do today? Am I dead right now? No. Then I have things to do. And live that way. This idea that, well, if I knew I was dying, I would do A, B, and C, that's insane. Nobody knows that they're dying. Live today like you're always dying in obedience to the commands of God. Consider it soberly. Thirdly, approach every day, every moment, every opportunity with death in view. Now you say, well, that sounds like you're obsessing over death. Just keep it in view. Just consider it. Death is coming. We ought not be foolish about the idea of death. You know, I'm not going to wear a seatbelt because, I mean, God's already appointed my day. Don't be foolish. But at the same time, we ought not fancy ourselves wise because we have adopted the world's wisdom that somehow I can push that day out just a little bit. As Christians, our focus in this life is not ultimately to preserve physical life or even... A particular quality of physical life, we are to use our physical life as the time where we are preparing for death. And that's countercultural. Because everything in our society says, no, we need to, we need to preserve physical life, preserve the quality of life. Well, what if I have to live by this standard? Or what if this happens? Or what if this law is passed? What are we going to do? How will we ever live? Everything in, in our lives is built to, to somehow. Cushion us from the reality that you're going to die, and we spend all of our time thinking about life as if death is not coming. Use your life to prepare for death. What efforts would we withhold from service to Christ if we took this advice? What would, what would stop us? So, well, I. I these are the things that I would do for Christ if I knew that I were going to die tomorrow. How do you know, know that you're not going to die tomorrow? What's, what's stopping you? Why, why would we withhold anything? Do we think that we're extending our lives? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing these certain things and I'm extending my life and so based on the average lifespan of a person here, you know, I've got this many years to do this many... I mentioned those men earlier who died young. They accomplished more in their their short years than many of us will accomplish in 70 or 80 because they had this view. They kept death before their eyes. And then lastly, as you approach death, rejoice in Christ who has tasted death, who has defeated death, who has entered into rest, and who awaits your presence if you're a Christian. If we have any reason to believe that the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ is anything akin to what He continues to pray in intercession even this very moment, then we can, we can assume that Christ wills in the presence of His Father at this very moment, I would that they be with Me, that they might see the glory that You have given Me. He's, he desires it even now. Christ has entered into His glory and is praying, Father, bring them to me. Bring them to me. I want them here. I want them here. So praise Him. Rejoice in Him. He's the one that's made death not scary. He's the one that's made death happy for the believer. So we ought to be able to stare death in the face and and, and with faith. We, We read stories of martyrs and it's hard for us to understand How could they do this? How could they go with such boldness to death? How can the the Christians in China act the way that they're acting? How can Christians in these countries act the way they're acting? The answer is because God gives grace to those people in that moment. We're not in that moment. That's why we can't conceive of how they could be so bold. When the moment comes, He will give the grace. His strength is made perfect in weakness. If we live all of our lives trying to show that we're not weak, that we're actually really strong, and we can avoid all of the suffering, his strength is never going to be made known. We're never going to have to rely on his grace. As long as we got legislation, and long as we got canned food in the basement, oh we're good. We don't need his grace. No, we do need his grace. We don't have to pick between those two. But that's our, our typical American mindset is we can legislate this stuff away. We pray to be made more after the image of Christ, and at the very same time, we live our every day of our lives insulating us from every form of suffering. You don't get both. Live every day with these truths in mind. God has appointed the day. You can't change the day. You don't know when the day is. If you're a Christian, that day will bring happiness. And you're not going to worry about your wife or your kids or your family or your country. You will be happy. And you'll, you'll look at Him face to face and you'll finally believe that He can actually take care of everything down there without me. He can actually do it. We don't believe it right now. God, God needs us here. He doesn't need us. When we see His face, we'll know it. Let's pray.